Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the business and science of biotechnology, presented by me, Cormac Sheridan. And me, Andy Smith. Hello, Cormac. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. You want to talk about biosimilars today? Well, I think it would be useful for us to catch up and ruminate on where we are in biosimilars, just where we've come from, perhaps, and then there's plenty to look forward to still. I'm one of those people, when I hear the word biosimilars, my ears glaze over, if that's possible. They've supposedly been a thing for, you know, I think it was 20 years ago, the European Medicines Agency or the European Commission put in place a biosimilar approval pathway. I can't remember the exact dates for the FDA, but it's been 15 years or so since we've had the first approval. I think it was in Europe, it was 2006. It was a biosimilar version of somatropin. And the FDA, I, I don't have the numbers, the dates for that. They've been going an awful long time. And it should be just a settled science and a settled economic argument that these drugs are substantially equivalent to the reference biologic products. They're cheaper, a lot cheaper, should be a lot cheaper, and we should all just be using them. And yet it's not as simple as that, is it? No, and you're right. It's been a long time coming, and it's still a long time coming. And even when Europe has led the charge in this, at least in legislation, and then in terms of its purchasing practices, while all that was going on in Europe, it was still illegal to produce a biosimilar in the US, or at least the approval framework didn't exist. And those original tentative steps in the US came about with drugs going through the whole rigmarole of a de novo drug registration product or BLA registration product before the biologics registration came into effect in the US. And then we have the aspects of, I mean, go back to biosimilars, it should be bigger by now. There should have been more biosimilar penetration into the market by now, yet it isn't. And why is it taking so long? Well, it's taking longer than it should do in Europe, just because the first six months or the first year of a small molecule drug launch, the innovator company can lose over 80% of its market share by value in that time. This is when a, a generic competitor comes on the market, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. When the first small molecule generic product gets approved, it gets 180-day exclusivity. And after that time, any company that can make a, a small molecule to pharmaceutical grade and clinical practice grade can then produce it. So eventually it turns into a free-for-all. And some might say, including the US generic companies like, well, the companies that are big in the US like Viatris and Teva, that it's, it's a commoditized, not very attractive market because there are so many active pharmaceutical ingredient or API suppliers, meaning that the prices go down. On the other hand, if you're a patient or if you're a payer, that's great because those previously expensive medicines are now available to you at a fraction of the cost. Yeah, and, we... and, and that is the compact made between society and the pharmaceutical industry, isn't it? I mean, that you can charge the earth for whatever period of patent exclusivity that you have. And after that, it is a free for all. And devil take the hindmost probably isn't a very accurate from the point of view of, of price competition in the pharmaceutical marketplace. But the idea being that if you can establish manufacturing that hits the quality marks, you have a substantially equivalent product. And obviously, small molecular generic drugs, it's a sort of a, 
predictable chemistry cooking process, basically. It's easy to define. It's a bit more complicated for biosimilars. Largely, it's within the bounds of how good your patent attorneys are to produce a patent thicket that you know, either formulation or some other administration or some aspects to prolong the patent life or the exclusivity of that drug, then yes, small molecules after the 180-day exclusivity should be a bun fight. And the only one that suffers is the price and the innovator, I guess. Now, biosimilars, and you know, you never hear the word in the early days of the biosimilar legislation. People talked about biogenerics. You never hear the phrase biogenerics because they're not quite biogenerics. When it, when you have a generic small molecule, it is within the realms of the most acute modeling and molecular determination of it's exactly the same as yeah. the innovator molecule. Right down to the individual hydrogen atoms and the angles and the bonds and and that sort of thing. It can't be done exactly the same way in biosimilars or biologic medicines because they're produced in in cells rather than chemical reactors. So you'd expect an odd bond or an odd hydrogen atom or an odd carbon atom even to be different here or there, which leads to the term biosimilar. And, 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 and glycosylation in particular can be extremely variable in different protein expression systems, right? Yeah, and that can also lead to effects like antibodies in patients that have succeed one and not the other or in both. And even the clearance of the drug, so it might take longer, the pharmacokinetics might be different if the glycosylation pattern is different. So that's why we have this legislation, which is more extensive in terms to get a biosimilar on the market than it is a small molecule generic drug. But even, say, even if I'm not making a biosimilar, if I'm making an original innovative biologic drug, those concerns still apply. You have this batch-to-batch consistency issue, and you can obviously define release specifications that don't necessarily give you a single numeric value, but will give you a range ranges that address different aspects of the product parameters. And can not the biosimilar guys or gals do the same thing? Um, Absolutely. And a chink in the armor of, let's call it interchangeability with a small eye between a biosimilar and the innovator product a chink in that armor happened way back before biosimilars really got going with genzyme genzyme had its own i think it was myozyme genzyme had a product a biologic product that produced in one factory and it wanted to ship production to a larger facility and produce two at the same time and when they looked at the molecular structure of the two one was slightly different to the other and of course at that time genzyme later acquired by Sanofi, they said, no, no, these are exactly the same things. Okay, this small difference doesn't make any difference. And they had to go through small clinical trials to show that they were interchangeability. And that sort of interchangeability morphed into the FDA's requirements for interchangeability in the US, which means that at the pharmacy level, if a biosimilar is interchangeable, then it can be exchanged for the innovator product without consultation with the physician. And that's true in some other markets as well. This is why we have the phrase biosimilar rather than biogeneric, because they are slightly different. And perhaps, although it's not the main reason, perhaps we got onto the business reason of why uptake is slow. Perhaps it's that reason that has put physicians and perhaps even payers 
often adopting biosimilars more than they should have, more than perhaps patients deserve. Over the years, just because this thought is there in the back of a physician's mind that, well, perhaps it's not quite exactly the same as the product I've been given to my patient, and therefore he or she might have a different reaction, whether it's safety or tolerability of this new product. So perhaps I might try it on a new patient rather than switch an existing patient over. And again, that slows up the penetration of biosimilars. But against that, in Europe and the US, we've had interchangeability studies. So where you have clinical studies that show that you can switch patients from the innovative product to the biosimilar product. And in general, they have the same effect. I'm not going to say they're the same, but they have the same efficacy and safety profiles. And those, right. those studies... We should be shouting them from the rooftops, but we're not, are we? Well, you don't need to shout them from the rooftops anymore in Europe because I don't think anyone had a conscious decision to do this. But in Europe, partly because of the financial dynamics, European regulators and European payers have seen those studies and thought, yeah, this interchangeability thing, it's a bit meh. Let's assume that they are now. And in general, you know, uptake of biosimilars in Europe achieves in some markets with gusto and others a bit more slowly but then they seem to recognize that biosimilars are biosimilar interchangeable that's interchangeable with the branded product so that assumes that europe has been a lot more positive on biosimilars for financial reasons whereas in the us there seems to be this bat to hit people over the head with of this you must have an interchangeable study in order to be substitutable and that has delayed its uptake in the US. And and it's interesting. I mean the US obviously is typically the the lead market for innovative products, but it's been very much a kind of a a follower in terms of the biosimilar uptake story. And yet, I mean if you look at the experience across Europe for the last 15 years or so, I don't think there's been a single study that shows that patients have had any type of a negative experience because they've switched from a a branded product to a biosimilar. Am I right? I don't think there's been any scandal that the biosimilar products in some way don't deliver in terms of the safety and efficacy benefits that the originator products did, as far as I'm aware. And and there are probably two theoretical reasons for that then one's not a theoretical reason one's an obvious reason you know these are drugs these are serious drugs to yeah. prevent or treat serious diseases so the safety monitoring around that is pretty intense so if there was some issue with biosimilars in europe a free-for-all biosimilar that's to say that in europe we would have seen it by now the other issue is that if you do have a biosimilar molecule that's slightly different than the innovator molecule and patients may be been on the, the innovative molecule for a year or two years or three years and be start to raising antibodies against a certain epitope. That epitope might not be present in the biosimilar. So they're off to the races again with a new effective drug. As well, let it be said, I mean, before we had biosimilars, we've always had Me Too products. And you look at, say, TNF, tumor necrosis factor, alpha inhibitors, massive big drug class the first drug i think enbrel was the first approved mm-hmm. tnf alpha inhibitor which was not a monoclonal antibody it was a fusion protein but all the other successor products have been and obviously humira slash adalimumab was for a while at least the world's best-selling drug mm-hmm. and what was fascinating there is that people even though those were protein-based biologic products all targeting the same receptor 
There were subtle differences between these products. And Adalimimab, obviously, as the kind of category leader, has become the reference product, I would think, for nearly every other biosimilar in that class. But that whole sort of slight variation in patient responses, combined with the fact that whether or not a patient with what is regarded as the same illness, such as rheumatoid arthritis, some will respond to a TNF alpha inhibitor and others will not, or will respond initially and become refractory. There's so much kind of complicated biology and background genetics going on there that we don't fully understand yet in terms of differential responses to drugs. So I think when you throw that the biosimilar thing in on top, there's plenty of scope for muddying the waters, I suppose, is the point I'm making. Yeah. And let's not forget that of all the anti-TNF inhibitors that have been available and are still available, Humira, when it came to the market, was the first fully human monoclonal Uh, antibody from Cambridge Antibody Technologies originally, then acquired by AstraZeneca. But it was the first fully human. So you'd expect the level of neutralizing antibodies or even non-neutralizing antibodies to be much lower than in any other. But that's not necessarily the issue. I mean, you think of the anti-CD20 antibodies, again, Rituxan, Roche's Rituxan, which is also biosimilar. Now, that's a chimeric antibody. There have been fully human antibodies produced against CD20, and they've been more immunogenic than rituxan, the chimeric. So it's a bit more different and a bit more structure activity complex than we understand. I mean, I do think the US is beginning to embrace biosimilars more readily. And I think it's there's pressure coming from Medicare. I think mm-hmm. the centers for Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid services are, are trying to do things to make interchangeability more easily conducted. I think there's also talk maybe of at least de-emphasizing the necessity for trials of clinical equivalence. I'm not phrasing it correctly, but the market forecasts are extraordinarily dramatic. I mean, different people have different numbers, but we're talking global revenues of about maybe 15 to 20 billion now rising to over 100 billion in the next five to seven years. Those are very big numbers. Is that something that would chime with what you're looking at as well? And where do you see the growth coming from? Is this because there will be a wholesale shift to uh, use of biosimilar drugs for chronic conditions, typically inflammatory conditions, which are lifelong I think the cancer drugs seem to go down the biosimilar route more readily, but obviously, sadly, one's use of a monoclonal antibody for cancer is going to be mm-hmm. typically limited, limited, whereas somebody who could be on a an antibody-based therapy for an autoimmune disease for 20, 30, 40 years, that's where I presume the biosimilar growth is going to come from, is it? I think you're right. I think you're right in terms of the, at least the distinction between an anti-inflammatory biosimilar penetration and an oncology, an anti-oncology biosimilar penetration, in that it is a much bigger chronic market. But I think the cause of that is not necessarily the duration of the indication, it's the size of the commercial opportunity. And again, they're two related, right? So someone on a chronic biologic for years is going to be worth a lot more to a pharmaceutical company or a biosimilar company than someone, unfortunately, who's on an oncology drug that has a more limited lifespan. So yes, there is that differentiation. I don't see an impact in Europe as a head where Humira came to the market, one of the most recent biosimilars in Europe. But other 
anti-TNF-alphas, as you've mentioned, infliximab and others have been biosimilars in Europe for much longer than even rituxan, the oncology Herceptin or Avastin. So I don't tend to make that distinction. I make this distinction in terms of that relates back to the whole commercial premise of why a biosimilar uptake has been so slow and in both jurisdictions, why it was initially slow in Europe why it's gathering pace in Europe, why it isn't gathering pace or it isn't gathering pace as much as perhaps patients deserve in the US. And that's all to do with the payers and the different markets between the US and Europe. So in Europe, there is a small number of country payers who have the drug budget, are responsible for the drug budget for the whole country, and they are publicly funded. So in the same way as small molecule drugs, they can't afford to have everyone on these very expensive branded drugs, or they will try and limit them. You know, they have postcode lotteries in the UK to prevent that. But then when biosimilars come along, it is a breath of fresh air to those strained healthcare budgets. Then can then, and Europe, again, amongst a popular European pastime is the tender where they go. And in some European markets, they can be exclusive so that the lowest cost biosimilar or innovator drug provider gets that whole country's contract. And this is mostly Nordic Europe for a year or two. And it's even worse than that. In Italy, if someone else comes along within that supposedly exclusive period, which is not called exclusive period, they can then take over that contract. Now, there's no incentive to do that in the US. And I mean, it's called capitalism, right? Price competition. Well, it is. But then against that, there is the profit motive in the US, where there is a highly fragmented market. There are federal government and commercial, largely commercial interests. And it's in the commercial interest of the insurers and the pharmacy benefit manufacturers to have a higher high list price because that determines the out-of-pocket cost paid by the patient and therefore their profits. So, so there's a kind of a perverse incentive to maintain high prices, which it, is fine for those intermediaries and it's fine for the drug companies. It ain't much good for the patients or for the government in the cases of Medicare patients. It seems to be perverse. Yeah, it does. Of thinking of this is only going to last for a certain period of time. Even in the US, the average congressman in the US will will talk about the differential prices of not just biosimilars, protein drugs, but small molecule drugs in the US compared to other markets. And we've seen senators and representatives bringing forward proposed legislation to look at, as you say, the intermediaries, these steps that prevent or are slowing biosimilar penetration in the US much more than it is. I mean, it's still going, it's not going as fast as it should do in Europe, but it's going much faster than it is in the US. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of price discounts, I mean, what I find really extraordinary here is that the range of discounts versus the reference products is enormous. It can range from 10% to 60% for the same product category. Yep. And I, I don't I don't understand why. Well, it is partly to do with the propensity. And I'm, I'm thinking of Europe as well. I mean, Denmark, Germany, Europe, you know, that they've got greater than 50% reduction in net price. But it's, it's still not the 80% reduction you see with small molecules, but it's well on the way. The UK and France have between 30 and 50% and France is, is is much smaller than that. So it depends on the, well, dare I say, the political lobbying in that, that country and the complexity of the healthcare system 
and in fact where those drugs are prescribed so if they're prescribed in hospital it's a different set of purchases and then if they're self-administered injections in the community so it's complex isn't it when you're adding profit motives you're adding capitalism and you're adding patient access as well as complexity of government and commercial systems and how they interplay off against each other and I mean, it's perfectly acceptable, obviously, that the discount is never going to be quite as steep for biosimilar as it is going to be for generic, because the, the manufacturing is more complex. What you have to do in terms of following the quality parameters is more costly. It's just the cost of goods themselves are higher, typically. It, it, the cost of goods is higher, absolutely. But the discount doesn't necessarily have to be that different. And in fact... I remember when I was in when I was in China talking to a, a biopharmaceutical company in China, they said to me they'd looked at the original patent for Humira adalimumab, and they couldn't understand why they weren't using, in terms of purification, the product something called protein A, which is used worldwide to purify monoclonal antibodies, and it was probably because there was a shortage of protein A at the time that that patent was filed. And that means that any Chinese manufacturer, or there were Chinese, she was talking to me about, there were Chinese manufacturers making Humira or Humira biosimilar much cheaper than probably Abvi could have done in that time, just because they were using protein A and, and Abvi different. So yes, they're going to be more expensive. Cells make them, they're a lot more demanding than chemical reactors in a chemical lab. But the discounts probably have a ways to go yet still. Okay. But because obviously there's been a, a massive boom in antibody drug development over the last two decades, I suppose, and there's obviously a whole clusters of drug classes that are fragment antibody based and all the rest of it, whatever flavor you want to, want to discuss. So in general... Cheaper antibody-based products means more affordability, greater accessibility, and hopefully better health benefits. You make a you make a great point, Cormac, and that's because put ourselves in the perspective of a biopharmaceutical company. You know, who have had a very successful monoclonal antibody that's now encountering biosimilar competition. We're picking our coffee because our golden goose has finally been slaughtered. What do the people in R&D, what are the people in corporate saying? We're going to be more innovative. You've got to go and get the next product along to do that. And that, as you say, is going to be a bispecific. It's going to be a radio labeled. It's going to be a multimer antibody. And to do that, you've got to develop that new drug. You've got to run. But because we now have biosimilar antibodies, potentially the costs of doing that are a lot lower. In fact, it should make it a lot easier for human ingenuity to bring on the next level of drugs in which you can get exclusivity and bring the next level of patents. So in that respect, from the people who would regard biosimilars as the biggest threat, it may be to the status quo today, but it could be their biggest opportunity to bring their next drugs along. I think that's a very interesting point you raise, actually. And I know manufacturing of bispecifics is even more complex than manufacturing of monospecific antibodies. So we're some time away yet, I think, from contemplating the first biosimilar version of a bispecific antibody product where we just started to see the approvals come through in that category. Well, there you go. We pleased everyone today. We pleased the innovator companies and the biosimilar companies. We must be doing something wrong. <laughs> Until the next time, Andy. Thank you. Cheers, Colin. Mind yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everyone.